All right, Matthew 5, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking about Christian ethics. And we concluded last week in verse 7 of the Beatitude where it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now what I'd like to minister on this morning is the next word that is down there in verse 8. Where he says, Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. They shall see God work in their life, bless their life, protect them, deliver them, help them. I believe that's the promise that goes with what is here. So when he speaks about purity, blessed are the pure, Jesus could have talked about external, outward purity. We could have gone in that direction. The Bible's not silent about it if you were to do your own study in that area, and maybe someday we'll look into those things. Outward purity would be in the area of, literally the word pure can be translated as clean, but it can be, for example, speak about being chaste. Paul speaks about how that he wants to present the church, the church as a chaste virgin unto Christ. It could be referring to modesty in Titus 2, the Bible admonishes the elder women to speak to the younger women that they um, are submissive and respectful to their husband. They are keepers at home. And he mentions that the, they be chaste or modest. Modesty is a mark of external purity. The book of Thessalonians talks about avoiding the appearance of evil. So there is an external purity we could get into. And I was only talking about New Testament, quite a bit in the Old. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Because it's, it's possible to put on an outward show of external purity, and yet at the same time be on the inside full of all kinds of things, all kinds of sin and corruption, that it's more or less just playing a, a game before others trying to imply that you are outwardly holy and pure, but inwardly your heart is filled with a lot of ungodliness. We just came from the Amish country, for example, and they put on an outward, external form of purity, and it may be genuine and real, but it, is, it isn't always true for everybody. Sometimes that inward purity is kind of like the Pharisees of old. If you look over to Matthew 23, for example, Jesus was exposing a lot of the hypocritical, hypocriticalness that was going on in his day amongst the religious leaders. He'll talk about this later on in the Sermon on the Mount, and so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but there he said that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. They had an external form of righteousness. It's easy to pretend that you're a holy, pure Christian, but what God looks at is on the inside. He looks at the heart. There were times where Jesus just came right out and said to the Pharisees and religious leaders, they were the, the ones that were the highest respected. And he came right out and told him, you're nothing more than a whited tomb full of dead men's bones. 
If you look at Matthew 23, just a couple of verses, he was very strong in his rebuking of their hypocrisy. He said, for example, here in uh, Matthew 23 and verse 25, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within you're full of extortion and excess. You blind Pharisees, clean up first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside then can be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you're like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And the words he spoke 2,000 years ago still apply today. And it's sad, too, because some of the biggest well-known ministries, sometimes God exposes their sins, which he said he would do. He said some men's sins go unto judgment and some men's sins go before. That hypocrisy to try to pretend that you're something that you're not, you're not going to see God other than see God either judge or chasten. He wants us to be genuine. He wants, to be, wants us to be real. He wants us to be led by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit being holy is going to lead us in a direction to whereby our heart and mind is going to be fruitful. And I'll explain that a little bit more in detail later on. But you take, for example, over to Psalm 24. You can see where God looks at the heart. And this is what David is bringing out in, a, in one of the Psalms. There's another one we'll look at a little bit over in uh, chapter 50. But in Psalm 24, for example, David here is crying out to the Lord. And he knows that what God is looking for is not just external purity, but purity in heart. So here's what he says in Psalm 24. He says... Um, Who, verse 3, I was going to read it all, but who, he says, shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? And then he goes on to describe it. He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You want to get answers to your prayer? You want God to be there for you in time of crisis and difficulty? Don't play games with him. Strive to have a purity of heart. Don't try to be something that you're not. Be genuine and real. And when the Holy Spirit pricks your conscience about some area, he's wanting to lead you to repentance. He's wanting you to, to, to do a work of change. And when he goes, when he starts working on us for us to change, he wants us to strive to have a, a purity of heart. He wants us to be genuine. He wants us to be real. I mean, look at Matthew 15, for example. The statement was made there by David. He said, he that has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, clean hands there isn't talking about literal 
hands that are clean, like we're washing them all the time. You could go through some kind of a system that you want to create to whereby you're washing your hands all the time, you know, to whereby you're kind of like Monk. And have you ever seen an old TV show called Monk? He had a thing where he was always grabbing some kind of a wet towel and always cleaning his hands because he's afraid of picking up a germ anywhere. That isn't what he's talking about here. Clean hands, he's saying, talking about innocent hands. Hands that are not out there working against people. Hands that are not out there stealing. Hands that are out there working for the Lord and, and not working for yourself and working against people. He talks about clean hands. In Matthew 15, this kind of came up. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had come up with some kind of a, a system to whereby they were always washing their hands before they ate or other areas. I was reading some different commentaries on this particular area, and one man brought out and mentioned the rabbi's names, and I don't know if he got them from Josephus or what, but he mentioned a couple of rabbi names that said, for example, that they were so committed to these washings that he speaks about here, and we'll read it in a minute, that one of them, for example, was put in prison. And when he was at prison, he would require water be brought to him and he would wash his hands every time before he ate meat. And if he didn't get any water, he didn't eat. And then he went on to say that after he uh, washed his hands and ate his meat, then he'd drink the water that would go with it. And one went on, one rabbi taught that not washing your hands was equivalent to adultery. They put it into a very, very high realm that there was a ceremonial washing that they had come up with because that way anything that they touched if their hands were pure, it would become pure, and then whatever they put into their mouth would not become defiled. So they threw this out at Jesus because they were looking for trouble, and they were watching the disciples, and they noticed that they didn't go through this ceremonial washing. Now, I'm not implying that they were out, you know, working the fields or taking care of the horses or mule or whatever, and their hands were filthy and they didn't wash. That isn't what's implied. There was a special spiritual type of washing. So it says in chapter 15, Then came Jesus, to Jesus, scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, and they wash not their hands when they eat? And Jesus didn't answer the question. He didn't uh, make any remark back. But he addressed them with a question. They were singling him and his disciples out for not doing some kind of a, a tradition that they had come up with. And he goes beyond the tradition. He says, why don't you obey the word of God? And he brought out a very important area of the word of God, and that was honor and respect toward your parents. He says, verse 3, he answered and said unto them, why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? And then he exposes the commandment of God and the tradition which took away from the commandment. God commanded saying, honor your father and mother and he that curses 
father and mother, let him die the death. Under the law, if a rebellious son or daughter cursed his mother or father, they could be executed. There was a death penalty that went along with it. And there are a couple of places, without getting into that, that the law spoke of it. But anyways, he one of the Ten Commandments was, Thou shalt honor thy father and mother. And Ephesians 6 says it's one with promise, that you may have a good, long, healthy life. If you're not interested in having a good, long, healthy, happy life, then just get mouthy and lippy and disrespectful and rebellious toward your, towards your parents, and you're going to open yourself up if you're not careful to whereby the devil can come in and destroy your life. You want a good life? Start out by being respectful and so forth toward your, toward your mother and father. And that goes also for the inside, not just the outside. You can be respectful on the outside and say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, no, ma'am, no, sir. But on the inside, if you are being critical and cynical, if you're stabbing them in the back of your mind, God knows your thoughts. He wants not just an outward tongue that will honor, be showing honor and respect, but he wants purity of heart. He wants the thoughts under control. To whereby when you're tempted to think something critical, something negative, something der derogatory toward your parents, or for that matter toward anyone, uh, any adult, any human being, that he wants you to cast that down and not let it dwell in your heart. Purity heart is uh, the controlling of the mind. We're going to always be tempted in some way, some area of the mind. But I like the way that Martin Luther put it one time. He said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from making a nest in your hair. You know what I mean? We're going to have thoughts thrown at us. Satan's going to throw thoughts at us. That's the fiery darts of the wicked one that Paul talked about. I mean, you know this by experience. I'm not telling you anything new. When you're tempted to become angry or disrespectful toward your parents, or it could be your boss or any other area, it's just amazing, isn't it? All the sarcastic, little, nasty, ugly digs that you could say. Well, if you got a loose tongue, you say it. But a lot of people can think those things, dwell on those things, let the bird build its nest on those things, and keep the mouth shut. But what God looks at is the nest being built, and you allowing it to happen because you're not casting down the thoughts that Satan's putting in. He says, he went on to say, I say to you, whosoever shall say to his father or mother, it's a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me and honors not thy father and mother, he'll be free. Thus you've made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Many believe there was something there in the, that they could uh, dedicate finances to the uh, to the system to to you know make sacrifices to the temple or the synagogue and if a need came in by a mother or father they could just say well I've got it all I gave it to God and God's more important they called it Corbin but he doesn't bring it out in this gospel but he called them hypocrites you hypocrites well did Isaiah prophesy of you saying this people they draw nigh unto me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's what Jesus is talking about, purity of heart, that on the inside we're genuine, 
and we're real. We're not filled with malice. We're not filled with uncleanness. We're not filled with criticism and gossip and falsely judging people. We are not allowing Satan to fill our minds with things that are wrong and then just continuing to think about those things. He says, in vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Well, they went on and the apostles said to him, you know, you offended the scribes and Pharisees with what you said. <laughs> verse, 13, verse 12, then came the disciples and said, knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard that? So what? They're going to get offended. You speak the truth and people are going to get offended. When you don't get offended, it's generally because you're not saying anything that's, that's costly. I mean, I remember one time many years ago teaching in Columbus, Ohio. I think I taught in Columbus for, I don't know, maybe 10 years. But I remember where a young lady came up to me and she'd sat under the word for a couple of years and she came up to me one time and she said, you know, your teachings just don't give me the peace and the joy that, that I need. And I said, well, are you putting into practice what I've taught? And she said, you know, kind of repeated what she said. What she said. And I looked at her and I said, you know, maybe that lack of peace and joy is the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you're just looking for something else. I mean, a lot of Christians, they don't want to hear anything in regard to the crucified life or bearing fruit or, or this. I mean, give us a little bit of uh, other areas. End time events, a big one. That, that, that's easy to sit back and listen to the new events going on in Israel. Not that that's bad, but if that's the only diet you're going to get, that man, that's like sitting down and, eat, and eating cake for, <laughs> for a lifestyle. You know what I mean? That's good and sweet. But Jesus said we were to count the cost. Well, there ain't much of a cost in that. The cost is, come on, Lord, hurry up and get home. Anyways, they were offended. And he said, every plant which my heavenly Father hasn't planted is going to be rooted up. Leave them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall in the ditch. And so Peter said, well, would you explain to us what is meant there? And he said, verse 16, are you without understanding? Don't you yet understand that whatsoever enters in at the mouth goes into the belly and is cast out into the draught? You don't have to go through some kind of special ceremonial washing to make sure that it's pure so it doesn't affect you on the inside. You want to keep from getting disease and infection and spiritual corruption on the inside? He said, those things which proceed out of the mouth, they come forth from the heart, they defile the man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, blasphemies. I mean, you can that's not hard to interpret. If our minds are always being filled with evil thoughts or anger whereby we were tempted that if we had the opportunity we'd bring forth vengeance and hurt somebody, adultery and fornication, there's a serious problem with pornography in the church today and in the world. I mean, it is. You know, I was looking at something on, uh, I, don't, I don't remember if it was on social media, 
but it was about something like 50 photos, old photos that rarely get shown. And I was scanning through them, and I was looking at them and kind of getting a chuckle out of them because, you know, my hobby is photography. And I saw one where, and I believe it was like in 1920, so it would be about 100 years ago, and it showed a bunch of women that were out on a beach somewhere, and they had on a woman's bathing suit, and they were kind of like real blousey, and, you know, they weren't form-fitting at all, and they certainly weren't like two-piece bikinis or anything. But, but they had like bloomer bottoms on the bottom, and they went down to just at the kneecap. That's where they stopped. And there was a policeman that had a yardstick, and he, was, he had it down on the sand. It was measuring the bottom of that lip to make sure that it was not illegal because anything, anything above a certain point was illegal. And I thought, wow, we've really come a long way in 100 years. But it's kind of gone the wrong way. You know what I mean? And you look at some of the spring break nudity that's going on in Florida, and they may as well not even wear anything, pretty much. So we've come a long way, I think, in the wrong way. But that's what we're talking about. He's talking about the mind here. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication. I mean, it's one thing to have a quick glance at maybe a, a, a beautiful woman. But like Luther said, it's another thing to take a look and look and keep thinking and letting that bird build a nest. You do that and it's going to have its effect on you because the Holy Spirit's not interested in looking at um, pornographic literature and other things that a lot of people focus upon. If you want the chastening hand of the Lord, you want God's judgment, just... Get to dwelling on it, and I guarantee he's going to have a, a talk with you about it. He is, doesn't like it. I think Nate was one, and I think I just saw that over here, that he had said to me that um, there was a book or something called The Bondage Breaker, and that uh, does it deal with things of that sort, or does it deal with all forms of areas where Satan wants to entrap people? All forms. Um, I, I saw where I think Bev got a hold of it or a book, if, if somebody's got a problem in that area, you need to focus on that. Because what God's looking for is a pure heart, a, a clean heart. So he talks about the things that defile a person. Evil thoughts, murders, adultery, fornication, thefts, false witnesses. These are the things that defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands. He said those are not things that defile so what he's talking about is that what he's looking for is purity of heart. Now, I'm not suggesting by any means that purity of heart is attaining to a state to whereby we reach sinlessness and we can't sin anymore. That's contrary to the word. First John 1 John 1.8, I think I put it up there real quick. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You can find many, many places in the Old Testament where some of the greatest saints, they slipped up, they fell, they messed up. You've got Noah and Abraham, Moses, Job, Elijah, Peter. Why would God allow us to see that? Because he wants us not to have an, an attitude whereby we think, for example, that, well, that would never happen to me. I'm more spiritual than that. 
And so he exposes that so that we're alert and on guard against Satan's temptations. And we're not to use that as an excuse for admonishments when it comes our way about behavior that's wrong. Like what they did with Paul, Romans 7. Romans 7, without turning there, Paul's talking about the battle, the warfare that's going on in, in his mind between the flesh and the spirit. He says, the things that I want to do, I find myself not doing. And the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? So men come along and they turn that into an excuse system. They say, well, when you get born again, you get a new nature. But you still keep the old nature. So now you have a dual nature. Well, human nature is us, the personality, the person. We're not schizophrenics. I mean, most churches believe that. And I don't try to get picky with them on somatics, but it's at the same time, when we get born again, we get a new nature. And that new nature is the image of Christ coming back to us that he wants us to mature and grow in. We have a new nature. It's referred to in the Bible as walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh, the old way of life. We got old habits and old ideas and old beliefs that need to be changed. And that's what the renewing process is that occurs at salvation. We get born again and the Holy Spirit starts a renewing process to bring us back to what originally God created us, created mankind into in Genesis 1. In the book of Genesis, it says that after he created all the animals, he created man. And he said, let's make man in our image. Image there isn't, you know, that, oh, so now we are, what, what we look like is what God looks like. No, image is not man. God is not a man. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man. The book of John, chapter 4, says God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He took on humanity to suffer and die for us and live as an, a, a human being with a righteous heart and being led by the spirit. But God is not a man. That's why I've always been anti all these things. that That's idolatry to try to portray that in that way. You know, the image of God is what is described like in the fruits of the Spirit. God is love. God is joy. God is peace. God is holy. These are his attributes. That's his nature. And that's what he wants us to understand and strive to let the Holy Spirit from within work on our minds and renew us to that. And I guarantee if you study the Word of God, as the Bible says in the Psalms, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed to his word, Psalm 119.9. If you study the word of God and you, you'll find that when you are tempted in some way to get angry, to get bitter, to get resentful, to be unforgiving, unclean, unpure thoughts, the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, will speak to you and he will inwardly say to you, as you gain knowledge on the word of God, this is what I want you to do in that situation. He won't make you, but what he wants you to do is yield. And as you yield to him, then you're walking in the spirit. 
and you know right from wrong, and you know it greater as your conscience becomes more and more programmed. And the stress in the Bible is to maintain a pure conscience before God. That's what we're talking about in regard to purity of heart. It's striving to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to whereby when he wants you to respond in a given situation in a certain way, that you, you're sensitive, you listen to him, and you strive to live that purity of heart. Not just some kind of outward, well, I'm a Christian, and on and on in talk, but you're seeking to have honesty, genuineness, cleansing, cleansing, and so forth on the inside, in the heart. That's what God is looking at. Look over to Psalm 51, for example. Look over to Psalm 51. You know, we talked about clean hands. Well, over in Psalm 51, David one time, he cries out to the Lord in, in a form of repentance. And listen to what he says, and let me explain it to you. Psalm 51, the whole psalm, but I don't know that I'll read it all, but he says here in Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And then he says, For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Now what's he talking about? I'll give you another version that kind of makes it a little easier to understand verse 4. He says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now we know he also sinned against others, which you'll see in a moment, but he's crying out to the Lord. He says, against thee and thee only I have sinned and done this evil thing in thine eyes, so that thou art righteous in thy words and thou art pure in thy judging. What does he mean by that? Well, to understand that, you've got to turn over to Second Samuel chapter 12, because this is talking about his sin with Bathsheba. Second Samuel chapter 12. You remember the story, and, I, and put your ribbon there in, uh, in Psalm 51 because I want to come back to it because he cries out and says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. What's he talking about? Well, he sinned with Bathsheba. Do you remember the, the way the story went? David, Bathsheba was a beautiful woman, the wife of Uriah, and she went out on the rooftop. They, they evidently had like flat rooftops, you know, that you can still find today. And they did the bathing out there. And so she went out and she was taking a bath. And David must have been close enough in distance to whereby when he went out, he looked over and he saw that gorgeous woman taking a bath. And he didn't just, you know, look over there and then turn his head away and let that bird go fly over. No, he just kept staring. And he allowed that bird to make its nest in his mind. And being the king, he could pretty much do anything that he wanted because he had 
the power to do that, like a lot of politicians today. Today, You know what I mean? I mean, we find more and more these politicians will come out and point the finger at another politician that their sexual crimes that they're committing, and then six months, a year, two years later, they're nothing but hypocrites because they're involved in the very same thing. Governor of New York has been accused of that several times. But anyways, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. I don't know how long that relationship was going, but at some point she finds out she's pregnant. And so David, now he's in a real spot. So he finds out that her husband's name is Uriah, and Uriah is one in the military for David. So he says, well, let's give him a, an R&R. Let's bring him home. He's been out there in the battle. Let's get him home to whereby he can, uh, you know, go back to bed with his wife and and then he'll think that the baby that is in Bathsheba is his and not mine, and it'll all work out. Well, Uriah was such a loyal, good soldier that when he came home, he didn't go to bed with his wife. He stayed faithfully in the area of David to protect and take care of David. He, was, he had such a, a love for country and a love for King David that he wouldn't uh, use that time to go with his wife. So David was in a pickle because Bathsheba's, Bathsheba's getting bigger. And so he says, all right, to his generals, put him on the front line. And when he put him on the front line, he gets killed in battle. And so when he gets killed in battle, now Bathsheba becomes a widow. So he can go ahead and take Bathsheba as one of his wives. He had several wives. But now he can take Bathsheba as one of his wives. And it seems like, you know, everything's kind of, I got away with it. You know what I mean? Uh, I committed murder by putting him on the front line. I committed adultery by messing around, messing around with his wife. I don't think anybody knows it. It seems like this plan that I came out worked with perfect. And I can't speak for David's conscience. I don't think it really ever got cleared up. But at least he felt like as each day went by and nothing happened, it was like, Oh, good. I think I got away with it. But then comes one day. And this is what you have over in Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. If you read this, it says, Second chapter, chapter, Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan unto David. Nathan was a prophet. And he came unto him, and he said unto him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. And the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb. So all he had was a ewe lamb. What's a ewe lamb? Anybody know what a ewe lamb is? Well, it would be like a, a ewe lamb. Yeah, what is it? Yes, it is. What kind of sheep? Your daddy's telling you. <laughs> it was a... Huh? It was a little young lamb, okay? And he goes on to describe it. He says, uh, the poor man had nothing but one, one little ewe lamb, that was a little female uh, young lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it, they grew together with him, with his children. It ate from his own meat. It drank of his own cup. It laid 
in his bosom, and it was unto him as a daughter. You know, it's like a pet, like a dog. I got a dog named Daisy, and she's a lot like that, or she used to be. In her old age, she's changing. But anyways, we, <laughs> I'm getting my wife going because she thinks I treat Daisy mean. But uh, anyways, she can... <laughs> i, I got to be careful of my words here. Anyways, so along comes a traveler. Get the picture. Here's this rich rancher. He's got all kinds of sheep, all kinds of goats. He's got a, got a uh, you know, a big ranch. And along comes a, a traveler, an individual that knows him and has some maybe kind of business dealing with him. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, spared of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he dressed it for the man that was come to him. He didn't want to kill one of his own sheep. Let's just take it from my servant and take that little ewe lamb he's got. So that's described to him. And David's anger was kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man hath done this thing, shall surely die. Or at least maybe say, That guy needs to be punished with death. And then he went on to say, And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. I mean, can you imagine the king is just really pouring out his, his power, pouring out his wrath, thinking, how could a guy be so cruel as to do what he did? And he's kind of, Nathan's standing right there, looking at him. You know, like, look at me. You know what I mean? Giving him the eye. Here's Nathan, looking right at him. Daggers, man. And what did he say? Thou art the man. Can you imagine how David must have felt? He thought he got away with it. He thought nobody knew. God knows. And so what did he do? Thou art the man. So what was his response? Was it one of those excuseful comments that come forth from a lot of people today, fundamentalists? that they respond when they get caught in sin, here's their response. Well, that's my old nature coming out, and I can't get rid of that old nature till I die. When I die, that old nature is going to go away. But in the meantime, nobody's perfect. What about Noah? What about Abraham? What about, and start going through a list of people in the Old Testament. Or as people do with excuses, they'll sometimes say, well, I know this person and that person, and they're a Christian, and this and that happen. And there's no brokenness there whatsoever. But the point is, you see, God, God was talking about what, what happened there, and he was talking about the sin, the plotting, the conniving, the lying, the cheating, and everything else that was going on in David's heart. He tried to cover that up. He tried to hide it. And God said, uh-uh, that doesn't work in my kingdom. You're not going to cover that up and get away with it. What God wants from us is purity of heart. We're going to be tempted, but what do we do with those temptations that come? Well, anyways, Nathan went on to speak to David. He said, Nathan said to David, verse 7, thou art the man. Can you imagine? I, I can... <laughs> 
I remember one time as a kid, I got in trouble. I was, I don't know, I was in my early teens and a bunch of us just decided one snowy day to go out on an overpass and start having a snowball fight. At least that's what I told the judge. In reality, we were making snowballs and flinging them over the other side trying to hit cars. Just trying to have some fun. And somebody made a snowball and it was an ice ball with a rock in it, stone in it, when it went down. When it went down, it cracked the windshield of a semi. So we ran. And we went to a farmer's house that one of the boys was a farmer. Went to the farmer's house and and after a few hours had gone by, you know, and nothing happened, it was like, whew, we got away with it. And then there was a, at the door, and it was the sheriff. And he asked us, you know, he wanted to know if we had been out on the overpath and so forth. And um, I can't remember exactly what we said. I think we first lied. And he picked up our boots that were sitting along the edge, he picked them up, and one of them had a worn-out pattern in the bottom of the boot. Happened to be my boot, too. The other ones didn't. And he went out there. I think we told him we didn't go outside, and he picked the boot up, and he went out, and he, you could see the, snow, the prints in the snow. And he said, well, I know you've been outside because look at the pattern on the boot and what's here. So it appeared, you know, we ended up, and he wrote up a ticket and all that. I don't remember. I was just a young kid. But anyways, nothing happened after that. For several months, nothing happened. So you kind of feel like, ah, I got away with it. And they didn't do anything about it. In fact, one of the boys, his father worked for a semi company, and it was one of the trucks that belonged to that company, and it ended up getting the windshield taken care of. And so we thought, we thought it was all over and the longer it went, the more at ease you became and the more you felt like you got away with it. And then one day we got a letter in the mail to appear in juvenile court. Got caught. Well, I mean, not, and, and now we had to face the judgment. That's what David's here facing. You don't get away with it. You don't get away with it. I remember being uh, in charge of an estate where someone died and the individual must have thought that when they didn't pay their bills and let them pile up through the credit companies and the credit card companies supposedly just wrote it all off. Oh, no. It went way back many, many, many years and all those old debts were collected and taken out of the estate before anything was distributed. And I learned a big lesson from that. That your, debts, that your debts have to be paid. See, that's why we're so thankful for the mercy of God because Jesus paid a debt that we couldn't pay. Hallelujah. We talked about that last week in regard to mercy. So Nathan said, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God, I anointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wife in thy bosom, and I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah, and if that would have been too little, I would have given thee moreover such and such things, whatever you wanted. It was like, my gosh, David, I gave you everything. Did you have to steal a man's wife? Did you have to kill him? 
He said, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and thou hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. So he says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house. Because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am going to raise up evil against thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. And on and on. You know the rest of the story, I believe, of David. He suffered greatly. There was young ones getting raped and murder that was occurring and usurping of the kingdom. And on and on. You say, where was the mercy in all that? He did not allow David to be executed for what he did. That's about it. Other than that, he sorely chastened him and so forth. So when, when you understand that, you read Psalm 71. He says, he's crying out, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercy, blot out my sin. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is before me. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. And sin did my mother conceive me. But you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, blood. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide thy face from my sin. Blot out thine iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit from within me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uphold me with thy free spirit. So he's crying out. He's saying, Lord, create in me a pure heart. Create in me a clean heart. That's what God wants from us. We're going to be tempted in many, many ways to sin. But if we've got a new heart, now we have a desire in our heart to want to please the Lord. Not make, not make excuses. Excuses like people make out of Romans 7. Woe am I, the things that I want to do, I can't do because i got that old man from within. You'd find if you keep reading the Apostle Paul, he says, crucify that old man. He says, cast off that old man. He tells us to get with it, be strong, and when we're tempted, be like Luther said, let it fly over the head. But don't dwell on it, meditate upon it, think upon it. I don't care if you're talking about somebody's lied about you, somebody has offended you in some way, somebody has stolen something from you, it is something unclean before your eyes. God wants you to maintain, have a pure heart. So he wants you at that point to say, you know, I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm not going to think on that. I'm not going to make an issue on that. I'm going to cast that down. I'm going to do what God says in his word. And you'll see this keeps coming up in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about if your hand offends thee, cut it off. If your eye offends thee, pluck it out. Well, he isn't talking about it literally, but what he's saying is, that if you have to take drastic means to strive to keep your mind and heart free from defilement, do it. Do whatever you have to do to maintain a heart and a mind 
that is genuine and real. It's not talking about sinlessness. That's impossible. But what he's talking about is that we need to be sincere and genuine and real and not play some kind of a game. A lot of people profess Christianity, but they're only playing a game if they're not inwardly striving to be conformed under the image of Christ. Well, I've gone my hour. There's a lot, lot more that I want to say as we go on. But do you understand what, what he's saying there when he says, blessed are the pure in heart? He's saying, do an examination on the inside. What do I think about? What do I meditate upon? What is my mind focused upon? Is it clean? Is it pure? He said it in Philippians 6. Whatsoever is true, whatsoever is right, whatsoever is lovely, whatsoever is a good report. Remember? He said, think on these things. He wants us to have our mind renewed and reprogrammed. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life. Father, I've, I've run my limit this morning. The baskets are full. I just pray that we would take what was said and and learn a lesson from what David said. David didn't start making excuses. People too often are always making excuses when they get caught for sin. And David, he didn't, he didn't make excuses. He cried unto you in repentance and he said, Oh God, keep doing the work in me. Create in me a clean heart. There was a brokenness, a humility. He knew in his heart that he wasn't right. And he humbly received that rebuke and he turned into a changed man. That's what we need to do is that we need to examine ourselves and strive to take heed to your word. We ask your blessing on this, Lord, and help us as the weeks go by to keep talking about it so that we can be pleasing in your sight. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.